Welcome to Request for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekbal. And I'm Michael Rogers. On today's show, Michael and I talk with Max Ogden, creator of DAT, an open source decentralized tool for distributing datasets. Max has also done a lot of work in the Node.js ecosystem, including help start Node School and publishing hundreds of modules to NPM. He was also one of the first Code for America fellows. Our focus on today's episode with Max was around grant funding. We talked about how he figured out grants were right for developing debt and how he managed to find his first funders. We also get into the mechanics of grant funding. Max shared what it's like to work with grant funders and how to build those early relationships if you're looking for grants yourself. So Max, you have an interesting story in terms of how you ended up at Code for America. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up there? Yeah, actually, um, it was kind of fortuitous or random, um, at least to me at the time. Maybe it was all planned out. I have no idea. But I was uh, attending an event around OSCON, which used to be in Portland every year, and they moved it down to Austin um, last year. But OSCON was kind of cool. I could never afford to go, but it was kind of interesting because it would bring all these open source people into Portland. And one year, uh, I, there was like a civic apps competition here in Portland that I was participating in. It was uh, the city was trying to get people to use their open data. And so um, I was at an award ceremony for that and uh, received like an award for some civic app that I had made. Um, I had a thing called the PDX API that took the data sets from the city of Portland and made them uh, accessible to developers. And um, in the audience was Tim O'Reilly, who, you know, owns O'Reilly Books and runs OSCON. And he came up to me afterwards and he goes, hey, we're starting this new thing called Code for America. Um, here's my card. You should definitely apply to be a fellow. And this was about like nine months before the first um, Code for America fellowship term started. And so I was just like, holy cow, this is crazy. I had to, I started talking with the Code for America folks and applied for the fellowship and then got the fellowship, had to quit my job and then move to California. And so it was like a big, it was like a very quick succession of events that I didn't see coming that totally changed my life. Definitely. Um, mm. in many ways. So it was kind of just like this one. I mean, I guess it was, it seemed random to me at the time, but, um, because I was in the right place in the right time kind of thing. I actually met you when you got that award. I was at the the same thing. And uh, that was the first time that I met you. And you were like 19 or 20 at the time, but you still had that giant beard. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I didn't realize that you were there. That's crazy. I never knew that. Yeah, yeah. We were there uh, with Jay Chris and talked about CouchDB stuff and and uh, the upcoming event, um, the upcoming Couch Camp thing that we we're going to do. Max yeah. is actually the first person to buy a ticket to the first event that I ever ran uh, in wow. 2009. <laughs> Way to go, Max. Yeah, and I remember uh, when I first went to Oakland, right after I moved down to the Bay Area, or maybe I visited the Bay Area ahead of time. But basically, the first person I met up with was Michael. We like, I, he had like biked to a really cool coffee shop. And I was like, whoa, Oakland is awesome. And then I ended up living there for four years. So a lot of transformative <laughs> things happened for me in 2010. <laughs> Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, just sort of like how... I think you're at a startup before you were at Code for America. And it sounds like Code for America just helped you think about different applications of code in ways you hadn't necessarily done before for work. Yeah. Um, before that, I was working at a great team at a company, but the product wasn't anything that I was like passionate about. It was um, 
qualitative market research. And so it's just kind of boring. Um, I didn't really, I didn't feel strongly about helping companies target their products or whatever. Um, but I got super lucky because the team was super supportive and uh, it was a really good place for me as a college dropout to learn all the things that I needed to learn to be a functioning, contributing programmer to society. And so I really feel like I got, like nowadays, I feel like I was ahead of the curve. This was like the mid 2000s, late 2000s. Um, I was a junior programmer and I, and like the dream of a junior programmer is to get on a team where you're supported and mentored and given challenges and not expected to, you know, work weekends and like all this kind of thing. And Portland is pretty cool because the culture here is very family oriented and like personal oriented and not about, um, you know, like working for your company at all costs. And so I feel like now I'm ahead of the, I was ahead of the curve then because now I talk to junior programmers and they're like, oh, I wish that I could get any job where I'm like supported and mentored, but there's like no jobs available for that. And there's this huge influx of people coming in and I don't think a lot of companies know how to mentor people. So I'm just like incredibly grateful that I had an awesome mentor early on. So shout out to Dan Herrera if he's, if he's listening. Ooh, <laughs> he's, Dan Herrera. He taught me everything that I know. That's a really lucky opportunity. Yeah, 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 that's awesome. Uh, so, like, when you did HDX API, one of the, one of the premises of it was sort of uh, don't try to provide data to developers and something that they can understand. Just give me the data, and I'll make it accessible to developers. Um, which, which was interesting because you didn't have a lot of kind of inroads with the people publishing the data at the time. Um, but when you went into Code for America, there you're sort of paired with a, a municipality, and you're working with the government to to try to produce something. Can you tell me a little bit about what that transition was like? So rather than just sort of pushing something to developers um, that you get over a wall, but actually working with the civic governments. Yeah. And uh, the human side of code, I think, is that I learned through that process was like previously, I think you nailed it in the question. Actually, previously, I was sort of an outsider. I was a volunteer and I didn't feel like I could actually influence the things that the people that were working for the government could do. Technically, I just assumed that their process was set in stone and that um, they weren't interested in, in me as some random person um, who wasn't, you know, official and wasn't paid to help them. Um, and so I just did what I could. I took their data and tried to make it more useful on the outside. Um, but I think that the stroke of genius in the model of Code for America, which I think, I mean, they, they copied Teach for America, which is um, like very, it's very overtly modeled on that. And I think that the Teach for America model is you embed people and the Code for America model is also about embedding. And uh, the one of the really cool things about the Code for America program was you show up and the first week is about um, understanding government culture and how you can be an agent of change to show them like alternate alternative ways of doing things with technology. But an emphasis that it's not technical, it's like a human problem. Um, there's a lot of social problems and it's a lot of incentives problems. And we actually had like a negotiation workshop, which is was really really useful i still use the principles that i learned in that like every day um i had thought negotiation was a, was about um like if somebody is trying to detonate a bomb or something you like have to talk them down off of a ledge but it turns out that negotiation is just like if you're talking to anyone in your day-to-day -day life and you're trying to be nice to them like that's what negotiation is about it's about like having respect for other people's points of view and coming to like a positive outcome so the fact that Code for America didn't have us do like, you know, like a bunch of technical things on our first week, but instead they had us talk about being change agents and being 
like effective negotiators, I think speaks a lot to how they knew that it was essentially about embedding us inside of government and having us kind of like inspire people uh, with new ideas and have like an influx of um, like crazy ideas that came out of it. So the thing that it at the end of it, like go, so going into it, I thought it was a technical thing. I thought I was going to be like, okay, I'll go make a bunch of cool like APIs or whatever, or build a bunch of cool apps. And um, then by the end of it, though, I realized it was uh, that people inside of government aren't exposed to ideas like open source as much um, because the hiring and the procurement systems are essentially broken. So they don't have, I mean, they just don't have any way to get the, like to compete with talent for people that go and work at Google or whatever. So by like the code for America model is you literally get people to quit their jobs at Google for a year or like go on sabbatical and then you get them to become government employees. And so um, I didn't come from Google. I came from um, this like smaller company, but the general idea is just people from the, like practicing people from the tech industry um, get to go and do a year of public service. And so what was cool about it is that I actually became a government employee. I went through the ethics training at the city of Boston. I had a at cityofboston.gov email address. Um, I mean, it was the whole shebang. I was like an official um, employee in the mayor's office. And so that was actually really empowering for me because now I was on the other side of the wall, so to speak. Like when I was in Portland, I was just this random person that was like volunteering. Um, didn't feel like I had any power to actually change anything, but then now suddenly I was like a city of Boston employee. And so now I felt like my opinions were valid on things and I could like, you know, set up meetings with CIOs and talk to them about like, Hey, why are you procuring this horrible software? Why are you not trying to set up more open, uh, or like, why aren't you procuring open source software, for example? So that was super cool. Just, I feel like it was a hack. Like they were hacking the code for America hacked two things at once. It like gave me a lot of confidence that I actually, like my opinions did matter because it made me feel like I was like the expert coming in and trying to help people understand that they don't have to buy horrible software and hire people with horrible credentials. They can actually um, do things in a more progressive and modern open source way. But, and then also to them, it was like exciting because they had somebody coming in and, um, had a lot of excitement and enthusiasm. And I think I had, I definitely got a lot of people telling me they were surprised that they didn't make me shave to work in Boston city hall. I had a giant beard walking around Boston city hall. So it was like a bit of like a, it was definitely a bit of a culture, culture change thing on purpose. Like it was the point of it was you go into um, a city for a year and you try to make some cool things, but by the end of it, you don't just leave and the things go away. The idea is that by the end of it, you've, um, given the city like a different lens to view like a process for developing software. So actually the hardest thing about it was we had to come up with a way of contracting for support for the open source apps that we did because they were deployed on um, Heroku and they didn't know how to uh, maintain Heroku services. And so it turned out that the biggest outcome of the entire thing was like, we now had a way we like had to draft a new procurement policy for the city of Boston that let them support open source software um like have a support contract with a open source vendor and that was like a totally new groundbreaking thing for them because usually the support contracts are built into these huge multi-million con multi-million dollar contracts but the idea that they could have like a five thousand um, dollar open source support contract just so that if the app went down they had somebody that could they could call to help them um like it was like those kind of small wins that actually were the long-lasting effects whereas going into it i thought we were gonna um I didn't know that procurement was going to be like the focus of all of our efforts. It's an awesome story. And you started, so that was 2000, 
11, right? Mm-hmm. And then you started debt a couple years later, right? Um, yeah. And I'm assuming some of those experiences ended up feeding into the kind of work you ended up doing moving forward. Yeah, like in the last couple of months, um, when I was working at the city of Boston, I ended up um, working on a bunch of different like little prototype applications. And um, we were working with the public school system. And so we ended up another big thing that we didn't see was how much time we spent talking to lawyers about student data um, (laughs) and learned a lot of things about what we can and can't use in terms of data sets to build applications um, because of privacy issues. Um, And so it was like uh, for the year long fellowship near the end, I started working on kind of the thing that I had been working on in Portland, which was a better way to disseminate the data that the city had and make it available to people um, to build things. And um, so like data platforms, sort of. And my my motivating factor was um, data is read only. Usually, like when a city has data, data that they collect, they collect it for their own purposes. And then if they have an open data policy, they make it available to people, but they don't make it available in like a GitHub way. They make it available in like a download our CSV way. Um, And so people, if they use the data and found errors in the data or they wanted to clean up the data set, um, like say that I'm building an application and I have users that are contributing data that the city might want to know about. Um, Like for example, if I'm, uh, if I have like a running, like a jogging application and I have um, a better data set that the city has of where the the uh, joggable paths are inside of parks, like wouldn't the city want to know, um, like have higher quality data about where the pathways are versus their like um, potentially out of, out of date data set. So like the idea of having the data set be read write was like a motivating factor for me, but there wasn't any... Um, there were, there's basically no like version control tool for data sets that was out there. And so I started kind of like going down that rabbit hole a little bit. And then I was like, oh, this is a huge project. It's going to take a lot of time. So then I didn't work on it after the fellowship for about a year or maybe like a year and a half. And then I was like, oh, nobody's doing this still. I should probably do it. And then I started pursuing the idea of debt like more as like a full-time thing. So it, it sounds like the genesis of it was around uh, government data, but the project now is mainly focused on like scientific data and scientists. So like, how did that transition get made? Um, It was actually also kind of this fortuitous meeting. I had gone to the Mozilla festival, um, which is an awesome festival. It's basically like nine conferences at once in this big building in London. And it's all these different open knowledge, open culture, open science, open source, open journalism, open data. It's like all of these different awesome overlapping communities. Um, so I went to this thing and I had, um, I had like a prototype of debt, um, that I had developed. And then, uh, I think I gave like a lightning talk on it or something. And this, uh, grant officer from a foundation actually came up to me who was at the conference and he said, um, Hey, I saw that you were doing stuff around uh, data set sharing and you know better tools for syncing data data sets. Um, and you're you're working on government. Have you ever thought about scientific um, users? And I was like, well, I think science is really cool, but I you know I'm a college dropout and I've never I have no credentials and I don't really know. Um, and he's like, well, I think it's the same. He actually kind of like said, I think that what you're doing is exactly what a lot of scientists need right now, but you don't know it yet. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, okay, that's interesting. And 
I think he ended up being totally right. And so the funder actually approached me and convinced me to work on their like, um, their like social issue, so to speak. I thought that that was really interesting that, um, just getting a prototype out there and going to the right conference where you have this interdisciplinary crowd, um, and kind of saying like, Hey, like declaring to the world, like, Hey, I'm working on this thing. Here's like a demo or here's like a prototype. For me, it worked out because somebody said, Oh, I totally need that, but it's in this area that you don't know that you should be working on yet. And it helped that they were also a person that could write grants. So that was kind of like, that was another moment that totally changed the course of like my last four years was like this one chance meeting at the Mozilla Festival. And I think it was 2013. Awesome. Um, we're about to head into our break, but when we return, we'll dive into the grant process and um, some of the more organizational aspects. Hey everyone, Adam Stokowiak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. And if you're looking to hire the best freelance talent out there, head to toptal.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. Hire the top 3% of freelance talent out there, the world's best developers and designers, white glove service, risk pre-trial. That means that if you're not happy, you do not pay. You can hire a developer, you can hire a designer, you can hire both. If you need to scale your team, this is the place for you. To get started, head to toptal.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. Tell them Adam from the Changelog sent you. They'll take great care of you. If you'd like a more personal introduction, email me, adam at changelog.com. All right, we're back with Max Ogden of the DAT Project, and we're talking about grant funding. So I'm curious, Max, uh, when you started doing this, it sounds like you sort of fell into this fortuitous meeting with a grant funder. But how did you know that grant funding was right for you with this project? Why didn't you just build that in your spare time? Um, so I would give a lot of credit to the Knight Foundation. They have been doing a lot of work to try to make grant funding less scary. Um, one of the things that they've done is they, which I was, I think I was the first person that got one of these, um, just because of like a right place, right time kind of thing. Um, it was called the night prototype funds. And cause usually their grants are, um, multi-year commitment and they take a lot more work up front because you're planning kind of waterfall style for this multi-year period. Um, that's like the traditional, um, kind of grant structure is you're doing these bigger projects. And Knight said, um, it takes, if it takes three years to evaluate if something worked or not, that's kind of a long turnaround time. So instead they came up with a prototype and it's, uh, originally it was $50,000 for six months for one person to make a prototype of something and test an idea out. And then they revised it. And I think now it's $30,000. So it's kind of like a part-time, uh, full-time or part-time kind of like, if you don't have the time to quit your job or you don't want to make a like a huge risk doing like a multi-year thing on something that you're not sure about yet, or they even want you to take the prototype and develop it into a full grant. That's kind of how they see the pathway going. So I think that progressive thinking around um, smaller funding is really interesting. And I think Knight, it, the only reason that I got into this was because I could start small and because I didn't know enough to write a huge grant at the beginning, or I mean, huge meaning more than one person for six months. Yeah, definitely. I want to like, explicitly plug the night prototype fund because i think that's like i've heard really good experiences around it um and i think we'll get into it later but just sort of like why grants are so scary to people i think part of it is that you have these like enormous 
uh, amounts of money or these like multi-year commitments. And so I really like that that one is much shorter and smaller amounts of money. Yeah. So let, let's get into that a bit, like in Deconstructus. Like, what is grant writing? Like, how does this even work? <laughs> I probably have a different answer than a lot of people um, because there's the word grant is, you know, it could mean government grants. It could mean um, EU, EU grants. Um, I've noticed I have a someone that I work with that's in Denmark um, and the, they don't have this phenomenon of like eccentric billionaires that are either alive or dead. <laughs> that give away all their money through a trust because they're trying to evade taxes. And so they set up like a giant charitable trust, like Howard Hughes. Uh, I think it's the third largest endowment in the world. That was started at, so Howard Hughes could hide his tax money from the U.S. government. And then when he died, um, there was all this money. And so they're like, oh, we could start a medical institute and make grants with it. Um, and they actually run an entire neuroscience research facility off of the income, like the accrued interest or whatever on the the original endowment because there's just so much money in that thing so that's kind of like an american thing is the philanthropic private foundations that are like these eccentric mostly white male rich billionaire people are all of our grants have been uh dead rich billionaires however there are also alive rich billionaires um such as bill gates so that but that that's totally i didn't realize but that's totally an american phenomenon in the in europe they have a functioning government that makes grants so most of the grants like in say that you're Danish and you want to go get a grant, like because everybody pays so much taxes and they don't have as much private philanthropy, you end up getting your grants from the government, but they have like way more developed government grant programs. In the US, when you get a government grant, it's usually like really big and you have to be a pretty big institution. So those are actually pretty intimidating. Um, I don't think I'll ever get a US government grant. I think that I could get an EU grant if I was an EU citizen doing what I do now, because they're targeted at smaller things a lot of the time. The EU grants also get a lot bigger. So it kind of depends on where you're at. Um, so that's the first thing is like, don't expect, like if you've heard one person's grant experience, like there's probably way different levels of grants. Um, so just learning how to navigate, like which grants you actually want to go for um, is like the first step. Um, but also, uh, I think that to me, it's not about the grant writing. Um, the grant writing happens once you've developed the relationship with the, the person that you're writing the grant for. This is like, if you don't take anything away from this entire interview, um, I would say that if you want to go down the path of getting grant money for open source, you have to start building the relationships now. And it takes years of time to develop those relationships. So that's the biggest disappointment when I talk to people about like, because people are like, okay, I could go get VC and try to start like a company that does this open source thing and then figures out a way to make money off of it. And what's really cool about VC is you get money like really quickly. Um, but then you have to like down the road, make these compromising decisions where you have to weigh like your values across against like the shareholder income returns and stuff like that. So with grants, you don't get money quickly, you get money slowly, but then you never have to make, you yeah. And sometimes very slowly. Um, but the cool thing about it is you never have to make those like, um, judgment calls. Like you're, you're always working on what you want to be working on because you had to go through this process that you've like through the, the grant process to me is finding somebody that trusts you and then writing like the grant itself is the thing that's like the contract between you and the funder that's like here's the mission that i'm working on and they're never going to be like um like i haven't had any experiences like this at least i think some people have had this happen to them but i guess i've been lucky 
I've never had the funder come to me and say, Hey, change what you're working on. Um, like we, you have to do this now. It's not like they have, um, I, I at least don't feel like they have influence over my day-to-day direction because like I've already upfront established like what it is that the mission is. And they basically just give you money for a time window so that you can pursue that mission. And all they want at the end of it is to know what happened and what went wrong. So they want like a report. So it's like you end up doing a grant that's a grant right up at the beginning. That's like the pitch. That's like, here's what I want to work on. Can we agree? But and then you do a report like in the middle and at the end. Um, But that all actually comes after you spent a lot of time finding the right foundation in the U.S., for example. Find the right foundation, building the relationships. Um, and ideally, you want the funder to um, like approach you and say, hey, it'd be really cool if you applied to us with this idea. Um, so that process is probably a, people have different ways of doing it. For me, it was I worked at Code for America, which was funded by, I think, like six foundations. Um, Code for America was pretty well funded in the private foundation space. And uh, I also, because I was working at Code for America, that was the year that I got um, I got to start doing open source full time uh, because Code for America encourages all the fellows to do open source for everything so that it can be reusable. And so because I was doing open source full time, I started getting more involved in open source communities and I started going to more events like community events and meeting more people and networking. And so the combination of working for a nonprofit that was grant funded and going to events um, in that ecosystem um, meant that I met funders face to face. And I can't stress how important that is. Like if, um, like I said, like if you take one thing away from this entire thing, it's that don't go to like, you're not going to, I mean, I love JSConf, for example, and I love NodeConf, but you're not going to meet like people from the Knight Foundation at a JavaScript conference. Like you meet them at a, like I used to go to this conference called the Civic Media Conference, which was the MIT, MIT would host it. And I was living in the city of Boston for um, the Code for America Fellowship. And when you go to a, a conference that's like about, uh, it can still be a technical, technically focused conference or like a technology conference. But when it's focused on a specific issue, like the Civic Media Conference is about like the way that information is used in society. It's kind of like this high level idea, but at least it's like a particular like social direction. When you go to those kind of conferences, you, you immediately start meeting other people that are funded by grants or you meet the people that make the grants, like the foundation people. So I think that the key to grant funding is not just looking at it through a technical lens, but looking at it through a holistic lens of like, what am I actually going to do with the technology? And then finding out the events for that and going to those events and then meeting the people. And then once you have the relationships, um, then the rest of it, the actual grant writing process starts. But I don't think if I, th- I think if you start start writing grants without any of those relationships, you'll have like nine out of ten grants won't get approved. I would echo that, like yeah, thousand <laughs> percent. Um, it's actually it's fine. Like even hearing you talk about it, um, it reminds me a lot of venture capital. Um, and the advice is really similar, which is like build real relationships with investors. Um, ideally, you want them coming to you saying this is a really great fit for us, um, versus just sort of like cold applying to an email address and hoping that someone will get back to you. And I think you did a great job just sort of deconstructing how some of that could be less scary than you think, but that, yeah, I mean, meet them where they're at and go to events where they are or find, um, like the way I got my Ford funding was through a mutual connection. Um, and I wasn't even looking for funding, but 
I just sort of explained what I was doing. And that person was like, oh, I know who you should be talking to. But I think there's sort of like this running theme, even in this conversation around intersectionality and going sort of like out of your own sector to get inspiration from different sectors, which is both creatively stimulating, but also just allows you to meet people outside of like your most, say, like technical network. I think that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, you've gotten a lot of grants and, and they seem to be stepping up in terms of the amount of money that you're getting <laughs> over time. Um, I'm wondering if you could just walk us through like the grants that you've gotten and any changes that may have happened to the project or changes in direction that you may have gone down in order to get those grants or in order to, to work with those. Because you, you said that, you know, you're not changing mid course, but it does seem like if you're if you're now going from, you know, a five hundred thousand dollar grant to like a three million dollar grant lining up with their goals in the beginning might shift um, some of the project direction a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so I've got four grants to date um, and working on a fifth, but I can't really, um, that one's not like done. So I can't really talk about that one. <laughs> um, not that I'm trying to be transparent or not that I'm, I want to be transparent as much as I can, but um, I the grant people like to wait until it's announced so that there can be like a PR thing. So I can't really announce that one. <laughs> You want to be open, happen. but you also want to get that money, right? Exactly. <laughs> so I just want to be clear, though, that I am very pro-transparency. So if anybody listening like has questions that I didn't cover, like feel free to email me or DM me on Twitter, and I'll like you know I can send you my budget and everything like that. So the four grants that I've got, um, the first one was the prototype, and that was fifty thousand dollars, and it was for me to work for six months on the prototype of DAT, and I basically. The Knight Foundation said, hey, you were working on this stuff at Code for America. You never really continued working on it. Um, we have this new thing, the prototype grant. We were wondering if you're interested in um, building a prototype of that stuff that you never got a chance to finish working on at Code for America and just kind of see what happens. And so I was like, OK, awesome. That's like $50,000 to work on an open source project is pretty cool. So I did that. and It was just me. And then um, that was like in the summer of uh, 2013, I think. And then I went to MozFest that winter and it was like at the tail ends. So I was like, OK, I'm about to have to go figure out what I'm going to do next. But then I met this funder from the Sloan Foundation, whose name is Josh Greenberg. And um, Josh basically is the person who came up to me and said, hey, have you thought about working on scientific stuff? Um, so. So far, I'm like two for two. I had the foundations like come to me and find me and say, do you want to work on this stuff? Because I had I mean, at that point, I had invested years of unpaid open source work <laughs> into the ecosystem or like at Code for America. I actually took a pay cut to move to San Francisco. So, um, I mean, it doesn't really make a lot of sense financially up until this point. And it's still I mean, I still I would I want to be clear. I could make like twice as much. I'm not being arrogant. I'm, I can make twice or three times as much working at a startup than I do now. Um, but relative to nonprofits, I think I make more than average. So at first I was, I think 50K for six months was about the same burn rate that I have now. So actually everybody on my team makes $96,000 a year because that's um, $8,000 a month, which makes the, the grant forecasting really easy. Um, so all full-time employees right now, we, we all make $96,000 a year, which is if you talk to tech people, that's like really low. But if you talk to nonprofit people, it's <laughs> um, above average. So it's kind of like we tried to strike a balance between not making tech people not want to have the jobs, but at the same time, like supporting people. So the first grant was six months. The second grant, I think it was $260,000 for a year. 
And so that was because I basically said, hey, I don't want to work on this alone. I need um, a team. And so then I was able to hire two people. So that was a huge moment for me was going from, um, and I remember I had discussions with um, my partner, Jessica, at the time. And I was like, well, I'm working on this thing alone and it kind of sucks because I don't have any coworkers and I've been doing it for a while. And it'd be awesome if I had, you know, people like teammates. And so I remember when I, when I got that first Sloan grant, it was huge because um, now I could actually like start building a team up. Then it would, the project went to three people. And so after a year, um, and, and so we got the Sloan grant and what happened was Josh said, um, I want to pay you so that you prioritize scientific use cases, because if we don't pay you, like he basically justified the grant as if he doesn't pay us, then we're going to go like find funding from other sources to focus on other problems. But he wanted to like prioritize us to work on his issue, which was um, scientific reproducibility. So I haven't really said anything about that yet, but um, the TLDR on that is um, when scientists publish their work online, it's important that other scientists are able to access the paper that they wrote and also all the underlying data and code that they use to produce the paper so that um, like an actual collaborative process can occur or like a fact checking um, peer review sort of process can occur. So essentially like all of the public money that gets poured into public research it's important that all of those research outputs are saved forever so that um, science can still happen in the future but what happens today is that the data like never gets shared or if it does get shared the link breaks and then nobody can find the data set or the researcher moves to a different university and it was like on a hard drive that nobody knows where it is anymore because the person's not working there anymore so there's just a lack of good solutions in this space around ensuring that the data that underlies research is still available um, or available at all in the first place. So that's like the mission of the Sloan Foundation is, um, among other things, I think that they're, you may have heard their slogan if you listen to other podcasts there. Let me try to channel it. It's like the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation supporting the furthering of science and technology in the modern world or whatever. So that they're like very science focused. Um, now, now we're proper like NPR podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, maybe they'll find this podcast now because they'll be like, hey, you said the thing. Now we'll give you money. Uh-huh. Uh, so they're, I mean, they're very science focused and they are very clear about saying we want to prioritize you to work on science. And I actually thought that was cool because I think science is cool. So what happened was we had to, this this like first one year grant that established the team. What we had to do was make a commitment to working with scientists. And um, but it, it was basically like an R&D project because nobody knew what the like solutions were like they're basically they only knew what the problems were the problem was that no data is getting shared they don't know what the solution is though so we were kind of in a unique position where we had to figure out what we were building and the only way that i knew how to do that was by getting embedded into the problem and so the way that we wrote that first grant was um let's partner like grant people always want you to have metrics so that they can measure if you're slacking off or not, or if you're, you know, at the end of it, they can evaluate because they write a lot of grants. They want to be able to evaluate grants using like high level metrics. And so our metrics were let's partner with a certain number of labs. That was like our main um, requirement was that we made a commitment like they're going to pay us. We're going to get people to work with directly with a certain amount of scientific labs and really try to understand their process. And so and then at the end of it, we'll try to produce um, some software that is usable by these people in order to change their workflows. 
um, or encourage like better data sharing workflows. And so it's actually really fun because in the grant was like, okay, we'll do like four, I think we said we'll do four really in-depth um, partnerships with labs. And so we got to work with astrophysicists, with um, DNA researchers, um, with social scientists. It was like super fun because I got to learn a lot and I got to really like challenge my notion of what data sharing was because I had stuff that worked for like city governments. But then when we went to work with scientists, they're like, well, my data is um, literally a million times bigger than that. Or, um, you know, I'm using this file format that no one else has ever heard of except the 19 people that like use this or whatever. And so it was like a lot of really good challenges. And so for me, that was what the grant, that was like why the grant existed was nobody was working on these problems because um, in science, you're not paid to write software. And that's one of the big issues. I mentioned incentives earlier. I think grants are a great way to create new incentives because you just pay people and that's a pretty good incentive. In public institutions like science and government, there's often not great incentives um, to do things. So for example, it doesn't further your career in science. Like you're not gonna um, get a faculty position by writing open source. Um, you get a faculty position by getting published in a prestigious journal by writing open source like there's no prestigious journal that publishes open source so that doesn't help you so it, as a result they never do it because it doesn't right help. right but but there is a fair amount of prestige right for developers to take on really hard problems like like i like that aspect where he was saying i i want to pay you to do this so that I, like good people are focusing on hard problems um I, I think like a lot of people are probably thinking well if you only have 96 thousand dollars you're not going to get great people um but actually, I mean, you you have some severely hard problems that you've been working on, and you've gotten some really amazing people to to work on them. I don't think that people really appreciate the the scope of some of the technical problems in DAT. Um, but you were able to, you know, get Matthias Boos, who's like one of the most prolific programmers in the world, um, and you you've essentially, you know, implemented a custom Merkle tree, which is like basically like a for for our audience that doesn't know what that is, you basically re-implemented Git, uh, and then you backed it by like a BitTorrent network for efficient sharing and stuff like that. Like it's this is not simple work, um, and and you have a small team of like really amazing people, and we're able to get really amazing people. Like how how did you go about getting all of those people and and getting such great people to work for, you know, less than, uh, you know, San Francisco market rate, but, but, you know, a fair amount of money. Um, that's a good question. I think Matthias was the obvious choice for me. I had never met him actually, but, um, I published a lot of Node.js modules. And, um, so I was aware of him because he also pu was publishing a lot of like modules to NPM. And, um, I felt like the NPM community was really cool because there was a lot of people trying to produce reusable software. And um, also produce like efficient streaming software for writing like data infrastructure. And Matthias actually had a file sharing startup um, that we joke now that he was he was basically doing everything that we're doing now, except doing it in like a centralized way. And now he's doing he's just been working on the same like user experience, like sharing a bunch of files in a browser. But um, now we're doing it in a way that like works for that's like decentralized. And so he was like. Uh, I just knew he was awesome. And I actually just DM'd him on Twitter and was like, uh, hey, I don't know if you have a job right now, but uh, I just got this grant and I can hire people to work on these problems. Like, are you interested? And um, he still had a job, but he was in Denmark. So it was like, even though it was a full-time job, it's a Denmark full-time job. So it's like a part-time job in America. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so he just said, yeah, cool. I'll work part-time. And then uh, he eventually quit his job and has been working full time for about 
a year and a half or two years now. And then Carissa is another, um, like the, the next person that we hired and she's awesome. She was working at a startup that got bought and they were trying to build a GitHub for data, but then it got bought and it turned into like an enterprise thing that she didn't want to work on anymore. And she just found our project because we were out there and we were at open source conferences. And that's the way that I found Matthias was I was involved in open source and I was involved in the community and I had, you know, like I, I went to, I've been going to open source conferences since like, uh, I was 19 or whatever. So I just had a lot of, um, time invested in the community. So I think if I was going to underscore like one thing, it's that like, if you're a coder that wants to go down the path of supporting yourself through grants, it's really important that you go to as many community events as possible, both to meet funders, but to meet coworkers and expose yourself to different ideas. Um, and like the intersectional thing that Nadia mentioned, like, I think that's huge. Like having an interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary view of like, you should be able to tell people what your software, like uh, what communities your software affects, not just like, um, like in a utopic way or whatever, but like in a concrete way, like for us, because we spent so many years figuring it out, um, our key focus areas, I guess, is science, journalism, and government. We think that those are three really cool areas that there's actually a lot of fun, like funding to try to, um, like not, I don't want to say fix, but there's a lot of funding to, um, invest in better solutions because journal, everybody knows journalism is trying to reinvent itself because nobody's buying papers anymore. And, um, government has had a lot of innovation lately because of code for America and healthcare.gov being such a disaster. And there's this U S digital service now. And, um, science is kind of what we've been working on mostly, but I think that science journalism and government are three really interesting, um, areas that if you're a programmer, there's tons of exciting and challenging problems. And they're also like, they're the foundations of our society that we should all support anyway. Um, like going to work at a startup, like getting people to like engage with advertising more, um, doesn't have the same like moral imperative as, uh, like fixing the way that people are informed about what's happening in their community or whatever, like fixing local government or making scientific results like more available in the long term, things like that. So like we do definitely play a little bit. I mean, it's not like coercive, but um, the reason we're able to get like, or the reason that my team, we don't have that many people, by the way. Um, we just went from three to five, and then we have a couple part-time contractors. So we're not like a huge team, but um, I think that the reason that we're able to get, I think everybody on our team is super world-class. And the reason we're able to get world-class people is because we are, uh, we give people a huge degree of freedom. So people are basically their own bosses if they want to be, but I also try to support them as much as I can. Um, and everything you get to do is open source and you're impacting like an actual, like there's a direct impact of your work because we're, we're essentially like, in, like working directly for a specific community. In our case, it's been mostly scientists. Um, and so it's like meaningful. So I think it's important that um, it's not just like you show up to work and you get stock options and compensation and you work on like a backlog of issues. But I feel like everybody on our team is more like, um, like I encourage people to have their own projects that are, that they're passionate about, that they can be the owners of, which also helps in a remote working context. Cause if you have your own projects that you're the owner of, then you don't have to, um, sync up with other people to work on it. But then we also have like team level projects that we all try to co collaborate on. I think that we basically use the grant money 
to hire a bunch of really smart people and are not smart, but um, like passionate and invested people into the problem. And then just pay them to basically like almost like Bell Lab style, um, just like incentivize them to work on a set of problems that are like pretty high level and contribute to the ecosystem. And I really view it as like, we're just a bunch of people getting paid to like try to explore like the future of how scientific data is shared. Um, but we're not, if we were running ourselves like a startup, we would try to, um, you know, have everything be branded under our name and have everything be like productized or whatever, or like strategically open source things and strategically close source things. But for us, I feel like everybody on our team is like acting as an individual. And then sometimes we work together on bigger projects, but really it's like, we just try to get the best people and get them working in this space because otherwise they won't be incentivized to work on these problems. They'll go and um, get funding from elsewhere, like AKA get a job and go and work on some other problem that's not supporting the scientists. And, and I mean, some of the solutions to those problems are going to end up being better as their own thing, not attached to that, right? Like, you know, it's about what's best for the project and for the solution to the problem, not necessarily, you know, tying everything and making it on brand the way that you would in a startup, right? Right, totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, I think we're, uh, we're coming up for a break pretty soon. Um, in a few minutes, we're going to deep dive uh, into what it's like to get paid to work on your passion. Right back. Hey everyone, Adam Stukoviak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog, and I want to tell you about our cloud server of choice, Linode.com. Head to Linode.com slash RFC, get an SSD server running in seconds, plans start at just 10 bucks a month. And when I say our cloud server of choice, what I mean is that all of Changelog is hosted on Linode. Everything we do at Changelog.com is on a Linode server. What I'd like you to do is go to linode.com slash RFC, pick a plan, pick a distro, pick a location, and start your server today. Use our promo code RFC20 for a $20 credit. Linode.com slash RFC. And we're, uh, we're back with Max Ogden. All right, Max. So uh, I, I want to get into to kind of the, the whole paying people to work on open source thing. And especially a lot of the stuff you said about giving people a lot of autonomy, kind of letting them deal with whatever, um, because I've seen that go bad as well as good. Um, I think the classic example is that uh, Tim O'Reilly paid Larry Wall to work on Perl. And that was when Perl stopped really caring about its users and went down this Perl 6 thing for like a decade. Um, and so like when you change the incentive structures around open source and you're just paying people to work on whatever, um, does it end up getting mismatched with the actual audience for that and the rest of the community around that? Um, and and how, do you, how do you make sure that you're kind of staying on track and staying really on mission uh, for your organization? Yeah, I think um, the way that my coworker Carissa likes to put it is um, we can write code really efficiently because we're all professionals. So we could go a thousand miles, but if we go a thousand miles in the wrong direction, like we're actually hurting ourselves. <laughs> so having the direction is the hardest part and scoping everything. And so uh, what we try to do is always have deadlines for ourselves. So we sign up for talks uh, because if you have to give a talk, then like we encourage everybody on the team to always have like a, a personal deadline, like they commit to doing a presentation on something and then they end up getting it finished because they have a presentation. If you never are you saying that your organization actually uses conference driven development as a development strategy? Like oh, institutional? Yeah. I, <laughs> that is amazing. This is key. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
uh, I definitely endorse it because like for me, for example, if you go to the DAP project GitHub, you won't see that many projects. It's mostly administrative repositories. To find all of our projects, you go to all of our individual team members' pages. So I think it's really important that people have the credit for the work that they're doing because they're not going to work for the DAP project forever. They're going to go and have their own career that goes into other places afterwards. Or they might. I hope that they start their own grants. Like my my ultimate long term goal is that. We're not a giant nonprofit of like 25 people, but instead we're five projects of five people that all are in the same ecosystem as each other, supporting each other. But everybody can have their own, like find their own niche and their mission and have their own funding and, and whatever. So I think it's really important that people, all the work that people are doing that I'm paying them for goes onto their own um, GitHub account. And um, similarly, I think it's important that they personally are speaking on behalf of the community. Like we don't have like a developer evangelist that does that full time. Um, we have every, like, I just encourage everybody to kind of be the evangelism for themselves. Um, and if, and I, I also don't want people to give dat talks. I want them to talk about whatever they're passionate about. So it's not, you know, that's kind of like how we're different from a, like a startup or whatever. Um, like basically the only contract I have with the people on the team is like, I give you money and then you just try to come up with creative ways to contribute to the ecosystem and solve the problem in some way. But like at the same time, we can't just be like willy nilly, like giving people infinite amounts of time to work on stuff. So another super important thing is getting physically together. This is just like remote team stuff, but um, we are a remote team. You don't have to be a remote team, but I think it's valuable for us because if we were physically or like geographically constrained, it would make it harder to attract the talent that we do. So by being remote, we can be more flexible. Um, and I also have a lot of experience doing remote stuff. Um, like I worked at coffee shops for four years, I think the last four years. Um, and so yeah, coffee shop team. Um, and so it's like, you know, you just, there's too many things. I mean, you could spend hours talking about it, but, um, I was just going to say that the, a really important thing for us is we have a travel budget in our grants that allows us to, um, convene and we end up convening fairly regularly. Like I would say every two months or three months, we see each other face to face, like not the entire team, but at least one person see like travels to the other person's city, like every other month. Like I was just in, um, Copenhagen visiting Matthias two weeks ago. And then, uh, he just decided to come out here. Um, in two weeks because he was like, we're, we're just doing all these new projects because of this new grant that we just got. And he's like, Oh, I don't want to be on a different time zone. I'm like really excited to work on this stuff. So he's going to come out and it's also, you know, summer in the U S so it's a good time to visit and everything. So, um, we've done a lot of like renting cool cabins in the woods in Oregon and going to hack for like three days and then people fly back home. And so we spend that three day period getting really excited and doing project planning and coordination and coming up with what our like prototype that we're trying to build is, or like what the alpha release of something looks like. And then we can all go back to our, our day-to-day -day lives and be independent and work on it. And then kind of like, so that's like the, that's kind of like the, so the two phase thing is we have like an intensive project planning phase. And then we, once we scope out a roadmap for a couple months for every individual, then we can go back and kind of work in parallel. Um, we still like, ping each other with questions every day, but it's, we don't have like a daily centralized, like planning process. We have like a, we try to decentralize and asynchronize as much as possible. I mean, budget wise, that's probably still cheaper than an office, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. 
I mean, now that we're more people, I'm not sure how the economics are going to work out for travel budget, but um, I have noticed that grant funders are generally open to um, convenience. Like they, they love it. Yeah, they love convenience. <laughs> like you can pitch once you have a relationship with a funder, you can be like, hey, I wanted to get like 20 people that are like, you know, the the leaders in this open source community together with like a bunch of scientists. Can you pay for us to like all fly out to some place? And they're like, OK, that's always called a convening. Yeah, yeah. They're like $50,000 to fly a bunch of people for like a weekend conference. Like, OK, that's $50,000 to them is like totally um, as long as you're like pitch them on a thing that's like, oh, we'll definitely write a report for you afterwards. <laughs> yes. Um, they actually <laughs> like that. So we're going to try to do that soon because we're um, I'm starting to um, build up a consortium or alliance. We don't know the word yet with a bunch of other project based um, open source teams or I'm um, sorry. Op- grant-based open source teams. Um, and we're trying to figure out, like, we're trying to, like, write a manifesto for what it means to be a project like this because we don't really fit. Like, our team is really weird. Like, we don't fit in a traditional category. Like, we're not um, in academia, but we work with academics. And we're um, we're a nonprofit, except we write, like, pretty much all software, um, which I don't know a lot of nonprofits that are, like, just software-focused. And we're also not a startup, although people think we're a startup because we have a logo and a name. <laughs> so they just assume like we're a startup. And uh, so we just we're just kind of weird. We're an open source project, but we have a budget and people are paid to work on it. So that's also weird. Um, so we're trying to figure out like what like what is a name that we can call ourselves that people will understand. And like also all the stuff that I'm like sharing here, like it'd be cool if we had it written up in an accessible way so that people could kind of start down that path. So zooming out a little bit, uh, I don't know how much you've paid attention to the past year or so, but there have been a bunch of grant programs, whatever grant means, coming from different organizations like Mozilla and Linux um, and Stripe. And I'm curious to hear your take on sort of like, what do you think, what role do you think grants could or should be playing in funding open source work? Is it because in your case, this it was for funding a new project, right? And in other cases, it's for funding an existing project. And where is the sweet spot in terms of like where should that money be deployed most effectively? I'm, yeah, I think it's interesting that, like, for example, Stripe has an open source program. Um, I mean, I don't know what percentage of their, uh, their budget goes to that. I, the reason that I like private philanthropies is that the people working, for example, at the Gates Foundation or whatever. Like, we're not a Gates Foundation grantee, but the people working there, obviously, Bill Gates is a computer programmer. So, well, like, most people that are working there are focused on like the humanitarian side or like the social impact side, and they're not technologists. And so, you have to be able to learn to speak their language. But then, once you do, you're kind of like locking in your agreement with them to addressing their like societal problem using technology. And so, I think it's really important to have that yin and that yang of you're going to use technology as like one tool, but the end goal isn't to build the technology. The end goal is to affect change in some area. And I'm curious, like with Stripe, like what they're, I don't know if like I would consider making payment infrastructure more robust to be like affecting positive change in society. So I, I, I think like if they're just like I said earlier, there's like a bunch of different ways to define the word grant. For me, what that has meant is forcing myself to um, learn how to pitch my projects in a way that actually like affects 
some community or like, you know, has some sort of social impact. Um, that's where kind of like the nonprofit side comes in. Like people assume like if you're a nonprofit, you have some sort of social mission. And I think that's super important for open source people to be able to link their project to a social mission. So I think that that's really important. And I'm not sure if you have like for-profit companies who are giving the grants out. Like it could just be, I mean, I think grants can be a really simple way to, to just like fund infrastructure because otherwise you would have to go work at that company and be an employee to get paid. So grants are a way to just have people like they can basically say, hey, there's this person that doesn't work for us, but is super qualified. Let's just give them a grant. But I'm not sure, like, I don't think that's the long term. I don't know what the long term goal of that is, because by forcing me, for example, this grant process has forced me to learn how to become not just a programmer, but also like a project leader and a grant writer and um, like learning how to run an organization. Um, if I got like a Stripe grant to build uh, to like work on OpenSSL or whatever, I don't think that I would learn like any of those other things. I would just get, get paid to work on OpenSSL for a bit, make OpenSSL better, but then like run out of money and then have to go get a job anyway. It sounds like what it really separates into, it, it, I think nonprofit and for-profit is probably like the wrong way to look at this. Um, it's more that is, is the impact of this grant to improve a technology or is it to improve a, like a social outcome, right? Because you have, you have plenty of nonprofits and for-profits that depend on and then will you know, subsidize or put money into a technology because they're dependent on it in some way, right? Um, but you know, when you look at the social good of something, the only way to fund it is going to be with a grant, right? I mean, if, if, you're, if your primary outcome, that's like the only way to get any money for it. Yeah, I mean, economically, there is the term the public good, uh, which is like things that by definition, like the light, like lighthouses are the typical example where nobody wants to build the lighthouse because there's no like ROI on a lighthouse. It's a public infrastructure. But like if you don't have it, then like everyone dies. So you need somebody <laughs> to build it. And how are yeah. you a lighthouse? So if you're building a lighthouse, like it's grants are good. Yeah, that's um, that's partially why I've been interested in exploring like or thinking of open source software as public software um, to make that link between like a public good. And, and when I describe open source software to people who don't use it, it's sort of like, this is a thing that exists in the public domain that you can use for whatever purpose you want to use. But it's sort of a, a new concept for people to think about software that way, if they're not familiar with software. I mean, anyone outside of open source thinks of software is like Silicon Valley and tech and whatever. And it's like, well, there's also a lot that is just like, being created in the commons and being used and how do you end up supporting that stuff? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I mean, I think that it's, it's important to, to draw this distinction though, between like what you're doing, like, like the Node.js foundation is a nonprofit, but at the end of the day, it's there to make sure that that technology succeeds and there is social good outcomes built on top of the technology. But the mission of the foundation is to make sure that the technology is there. It's, it's not necessarily to focus on those social outcomes. I mean, it enables that, uh, but that is not, you know, part of the, the social mission there. Um, and a lot of the modules that you build, I'm, I'm sure could be used by a company to do some awesome, like big data research or whatever. Uh, but your mission and what you're focused on is actually building things for a particular social outcome right yeah definitely like we're i'd say yeah the linux foundation for example is a lot lower level in the stack because and that's like one of the trade-offs you have to make is like how detached from the issues do you want to be um i think that the the more attached to social issues you are the easier you'll find it to get grants because 
that's all grant people care about is you being able to contextualize your technology in their existing mission. And so that's like the whole art form is if you can say like, hey, my project helps scientists, then they'll be like, oh, we fund science. We'll write you a grant. Like that's the that was the thing that three years ago I wouldn't have been able to like say because I didn't know scientists had these problems until somebody approached me and like convinced me to work on it. So, yeah, it's like if you're detached from the, the social issues, then you have to find other ways of like supporting it. But like the Linux Foundation found a way to support it, which is like all these companies like use it and they can help, you know, support the overall project. Where do you think there are gaps in knowledge between um, grant makers and open source communities? What do you wish that like more funders knew about open source or vice versa? Um, so the biggest issue that I have is the way you have to write the grants up front with all the budget and all the plans. It's the same kind of uh, distinction as like waterfall versus agile, for example. For example, this grant that we just got, the money arrives. We don't have to get into the mechanics of how you receive money from a grant, but I'll just say that we we had access to the actual grant money in essentially June. It was like two weeks ago. And um, I wrote the grant with Carissa in October of last year. And so that's like a pretty long amount of time. I think it's like um, almost nine months. So we had an idea, we wrote a grant, and then nine months later, we get the money. And I would say that's like a, that's on the longer side for a philanthropic grant, but it's not uncommon. So, I mean, if you, if I had to tell you what I was going to work on in nine months from now, I wouldn't be able to tell you, but that's like another art form of grant writing is being able to write a grant that's vague enough that you can still, <laughs> once you start getting the money, you can still like use the money to work on the thing you said you were going to work on nine months ago. And so one thing that I wish that foundations would understand is um, timelines and agility and like basically what I would much rather have. And I understand that there's like you have to have a high level of trust to do something like this. But what I my preferred situation would be like I have a relationship with a funder. I convince them that we're the right people to work on the right issues. And so we get the people and the issues locked down and are like the causes. And then um, I can basically go back to them and say, okay, now I need a budget for the next three months to do this. And that can be like a, a lightweight process once I've like got in the door with them. Um, but right now, the way it works is you do everything in one big proposal, including the budget, and then you're locked into that for the entire duration of the grant budget. So it means that you have to plan ahead a lot and you're, you're constrained by the budget as you're doing the project. So for example, like say Nadia, that you wanted to come work on my team, I couldn't hire you today because I don't have any extra budget. I, what I could do is say, let's write a grant together. And then in nine months, maybe we'll have the budget to hire you. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like annoying because most startups have this slush fund that they can draw from uh, as they need to, um, which is like the initial investment. But the way grants work is you, you, um, your budget is not a big slush fund. It's like a paid out in increments, like burn rate that they like to be constant. So I can't hire people on a day-to-day -day basis and can't like readjust the budget like as the thing is in flight. So that's annoying. Um, so there's definitely some cultural differences in the way that they actually fund. Um, and also, I think if you ask most nonprofits, like they don't think about open source. Um, and most funders probably aren't thinking about open source, but I think that is changing. I think there's yeah. like the perception that there's not any funding out there for open source stuff. Um, I think if you ask most open source developers, um, 
to write a grant, they'll write a grant that's like super technical and has no social impacts, like linkage or whatever, like what I've been talking about. And so then they'll think that, oh, well, I wrote a grant to write like a new encryption scheme for this thing or whatever, or like a new database. And um, like, there's probably not a lot of places that will just fund you to work on random technology. But um, if you make your grant about fixing an actual problem in society, then I think grant people will be like, oh, you want to fix this problem and you're going to do it as open source. Like that's actually a competitive advantage over our other because I think that what they've done is they've like a lot of grant people have been funding technology over the last 10, 15 years. And they've seen they're starting to understand how funding technology works, which is things like um, like they have a lot of technical debt. They have a lot of projects that have horrible project management or they have like people will say in the grant like, oh, yeah, we're going to make awesome reusable software. And then they make software that's very difficult to reuse. Um, these are all just like inherent to software in general. Like anybody that works on software will like tell you that it's it's really easy to have a lot of technical debt and make a giant app that is really inflexible. So if you can make a pitch, you still have to make your pitch be about a social cause. But I think if you can make it, um, if you can say like, by the way, we're like we're doing it as open source and we actually want to invest in building up this ecosystem around this problem, that that's actually an advantage to you. But I don't think open source is like the reason you get the grant. It's just like a thing that helps. The reason you get the grant is that you're committing to like a cause that they care about. Well, and, and just like you were saying earlier, right? Like grants want to be tied to the social cause, right? Like they, yeah, that's yeah. What they want. So, you know, how do we, and, and it's not that programmers don't care about social causes. I mean, if they, if they didn't, you wouldn't be able to get such great people working on them. Um, it's really just that, you know, getting them to speak in that language um, and getting them to be on the page, the same page as their grant writers, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. In an ideal world, how do you picture that people would be able to work on open source? How could that be like, because right now, I mean, there's so many different grants that are, I think there's still sort of ad hoc opportunities. Um, but if you were to think about this on an institutional level, how could that actually be supported and funded? Um, so that is an awesome question. One way that I would answer it is procurement reform in government, which is like the most boring phrase that you could possibly say. But yes. um, like, think about the amount of money that is spent on software and government. Well, I mean, most people probably don't know, but there's like uh, an average project in the federal government for like, like there is a, actually, this isn't even federal government. This is the city of New York. They spent $600 million, two thirds of an Instagram on uh, a time tracking app for what? New York City employees. And it never shipped. Right, right. And, and one of the reasons, right, is that how much does it cost to apply to get that money, right? Yeah, because you have to like, have invested dozens of years into the nepotistic system of existing government procurement. And so it's like, it's not a technical problem to fix procurement, but it, if somebody fixes procurement, and by the way, it is being worked on now because, um, like I mentioned this earlier, but healthcare.gov was so bad that um, the silver lining around that, that's actually pretty exciting, is that there's um, two new organizations in the federal government that are hiring remote and they're hiring um, technologists and they're paying people to work on open source inside of government. Um, one is called the US Digital Service and the other is called 18F uh, or 18F. And they're sort of like a, a brother sister organization. So one is inside the executive branch and they're like the technology advocates. They're almost like um, the role that like the EFF plays where they, they have people come up with um, policies and they get 
the different agencies to adopt policies. And they go, like I have a friend that works there. He gets to go into like the VA or like the social security office. And they're like, hey, check out this new $100 million like database that we contracted. What do you think? And he's like, um, if I was like, he used to build data centers at Twitter. And he was like, if I was building this, I could have done it for $5 million <laughs> and saved you $95 million. Like, why did you build this for $100 million? And they're like, that's what the vendor told us. Um, like Oracle said, this was a great deal or whatever. And so that is a really important cause right now that actually has a fair amount of momentum. Um, 18F is where you go to work if you actually want to build the, the solutions. They're like, like an actual contractor um, that is government employees that um, like hires people to work on the actual projects. And uh, USDS is kind of like where you go to set the policy. So for instance, they are doing a lot of stuff around making all federal websites have mandatory SSL um, so that the NSA can't snoop on what you're browsing, for example. So there's like a lot of really cool momentum in fixing that system. And so if I was going to place a bet on where all the grants are going to be in the future, it's around like delivering government services in a more efficient way and actually competing for government grants because that landscape is about to get a lot more accessible to open source stuff because of all the work that's happening at the federal level. Um, and another way I would answer that is this question is um, like procurement reform is the first thing and that's happening. So like keep an eye on that space. The other thing is um, like I mentioned, like we don't know how to describe our project in terms of like, are we a nonprofit? Are we a academic project? Like we don't really know what our label is. And we're trying to figure out with some other groups, a model for supporting projects in this ecosystem. And um, so a great example to look at, I think they're doing some great work is um, if you look up this thing called the Substance Consortium, there is this awesome text editor. It's like a JavaScript, um, like a rich text editor and editing environment called Substance. It's like really beautifully designed and it's all open source. And uh, they had been working for this open access scientific journal, writing a journal article, viewer and editor. And um, they had all these other organizations, like they were basically being contracted by this one journal um, called eLife. And they built this thing called eLife Lens, which is like a really beautiful um, way to read papers because most people read papers on PDF. But um, trying to read a paper on your phone or whatever on a PDF, it has like super wide columns. And it's like, why can't I just have this be a web page? So they're trying to fix some of these problems. Um, and but they had all these other organizations in the space that were like, well, we also want to like invest together in better editing tools for science um, or just editing tools for the web in general. And so um, they set up this thing called the, uh, the Substance Consortium, which is like there's four stakeholders that all um, help pay for the development of Substance. But they're not like exclusively hiring the Substance team. Um, to work as like employees of their project. And so what's really cool about it is Substance itself can still be its standalone project that can make like reusable open source tools. Um, but it has like an open governance structure so that any of like the member organizations can help influence the project direction in a positive way and like work together to support the project without um, controlling the project. So their whole thing is like cooperation without control. And um, that work is being facilitated by a group called the Collaborative Knowledge Foundation which is one of the stakeholders um, or one of the people paying the substance team. And so for example, substance is just like the components, like the editor components. Um, but the substance team doesn't have like, they're just two people. They don't have uh, the, the linkage to like the social issue or they don't have the grant writing capability 
um, at this point. They want to get to that point, but they need like incubating and they need support for their project. Um, Collaborative Knowledge Foundation is a couple of folks that started it that are really focused on fixing the scientific publishing ecosystem. Like they want every journal to be using open source publishing tools. So they have the social mission. Like that's a huge social mission. Access to um, research is like a really big cause right now. Um, and so what's cool is that the, the Collaborative Knowledge Foundation has got some grants to work on fixing scientific publishing. And instead of like hiring the substance people as employees, they're just like, let's support like everyone in this ecosystem together and have substance still be standalone because they think it would be toxic if they actually like exclusively hired the substance people did work on their one thing. They would rather have substance like flourish and have a whole ecosystem because I mean, that's where open source works really well is when you have a bunch of interests that are supporting like a factored out common infrastructure. Um, so I think that the substance consortium model is really exciting and we're trying to figure out how to, um, we need to come up with a cool name for that way of doing things. And, uh, I think ideally the DAT project, since we are like, um, like a distributed file system, sort of, it's a pretty low level component. Um, and there's a bunch of different interests. It'd be awesome if we could get a similar thing for DAT. So we'd have like a DAT consortium and we would have the DAT project itself just be the technology, but then we would have all the different, um, like organizations that have a specific cause be able to support our work and maybe maybe we split up into two teams like one of us is the science cause and then all the low-level people go and work on just the infrastructure stuff awesome thanks so much for coming on here and talking to us about grant funding yeah anytime and uh definitely if you're listening to this and you want to learn more um feel free to reach out to me and i can send you some concrete examples of grants that i've written and stuff like that great thanks max Thank you.